0: The truth is oftentimes when people talk about refugees, they say, are there food, water, and shelter needs being met? But what if someone only talked about you in that way? The fullness of our humanity is that we should be able to experience joy every day, that we can all have the opportunity to feel safe enough, that we can laugh, that we can play with our friends outside, that we can go on a walk together and have a conversation. I think the willingness to think and talk about refugees as full people, just as you would want someone to talk about you, is a huge step in the right direction towards an activism that centers on giving refugees agency. In fact, they can help themselves, but they need people willing to see them as fully human.
1: Welcome to What Teachers Need to Know: The Middle East Edition. This podcast is a production of Primary Source, a nonprofit that provides PD for K-12 teachers in global learning. Learn more about Primary Source by visiting www.primarysource.org/podcasts. This episode was made possible through generous support from Qatar Foundation International, another nonprofit that inspires meaningful connections to the Arab world by creating a global community of diverse learners and educators. Learn more about QFI at www.qfi.org. The staggering number of refugees around the world today constitutes the greatest humanitarian crisis of our generation. And tragically, the crisis shows little signs of abating. Already, we have more than 65 million displaced persons worldwide, people who've had to flee their homes because of war or persecution some relatively recently, and others decades ago. Refugees are most visible in the Middle East and the Mediterranean, of course, but there are forcibly displaced persons on every inhabited continent. The problem is so large, in fact, that it can be really hard to remember that each of those refugees is a living, breathing human being. The disconnect can also make teaching about refugees difficult. How do you humanize a crisis of this magnitude? Well, in this episode, we'll try to do just that by talking and thinking about refugees in the Middle East as individuals, as people have to navigate hardship, but still find time for things like celebrating birthdays and getting their hair cut. First, we'll meet a scholar who studies how displaced people living in camps go from survive mode to thrive mode, as she calls it, which we hope will change the way you think about refugees. Then we'll talk about ways that you and your students can actually connect with refugees in and from the Middle East on a person-to-person basis. Finally, we'll wrap up with some thoughts from a middle school teacher on how she teaches about refugees in her sixth-grade classroom. This is episode nine, Lessons from Refugees.
0: Today in the world, there's almost 65 million refugees, more so than any time in history, even since World War II which is a pretty astounding number. It's a huge volume of humans that are not living in traditional political settings, meaning they're not citizens enjoying the normal benefits of citizenship in a formal legal structure state.
1: Meet Nadia Hodge, assistant professor in the Peace and Justice Studies program and political science department at Wellesley College. Professor Hodge is an expert on refugees in the Middle East and has conducted field research in refugee camps in the region, including in Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria. She's particularly interested in how refugees seek to create order in their lives amidst the chaos and uncertainty that often surround them.
0: You have millions of people living in transition, in insecure settings, that is, without a regular home, secure access to food, and no source of clear protection from, you know, a legal force or even a military force or police force offering security in that regard.
1: We're going to spend some time exploring life in some of these older refugee camps in order to give you a better sense of camp life from the perspective of the people who live in them. But first, let's pull back and take a look at the bigger picture. How did this crisis happen?
0: I think this huge flow that we're seeing in this uptick in refugees is the result of a lot of conflicts that were never fully resolved. So if you think back to the Iraq War in 2003, though many Americans think that is done for the majority of Iraqis, their political situation remains completely unstable. Huge influx of Iraqi refugees and Afghani refugees from Afghanistan began in 2003. And then when you couple that in the Middle East, in particular, with the Arab Spring, the revolts that happened in 2011, many of those revolts were not successful fully, in the sense that a new regime didn't come to power and consolidate that power. And then look at the Syrian crisis that continues, you know, now seven years later, with the majority of Syrians living outside of Syria and borders today, And so there's this increasing insecurity, and people are fleeing those settings, just as any human would that wants stability and safety for their family.
1: Now, there are several international organizations out there with mandates to assist refugees worldwide. The two most significant being the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, or UNHCR for short, and the UNRWA, or United Nations Relief and Works Agency which was created more than half a century ago specifically to assist Palestinian refugees after the Arab-Israeli conflict of 1948. Both institutions do some pretty amazing work, but with 65 million displaced persons around the world, they are completely overwhelmed. And if that weren't challenging enough, funding from the international community is drying up, meaning the people and organizations that are trying to assist refugees are strapped for cash at a time they need it the most.
0: I think that there's not adequate financial support for countries that are absorbing the majority of these refugees, and that the United States in particular has waned, I think, in its financial support of most of these organizations. So you're facing a huge humanitarian crisis where there's these increasing numbers of refugees living in increasingly insecure places, and lack of adequate funding for international organizations and humanitarian organizations that are meant to provide them with support during this time.
1: One other important point, Professor Hodge is an expert on refugee camps, not only because she spent so much time studying them, but also because she spent significant parts of her childhood living in one.
0: I came to study refugees, both intellectually I was interested in studying how communities living in these types of transitional spaces where there's not formal state authority. I came to that from a theoretic perspective. It was intellectually interesting to me. But on a personal level, I felt like it was a passion to me because my father is a refugee from 1948. In 1944, his family lived in the north of Palestine in a farming community. And in 1948, when conflict broke out between Israelis and Palestinians and other Arab states, his family forcibly migrated. They ended up in a camp in the north of Lebanon called Nahedid Badid, which means the cold river. For me, growing up, it was always emphasized to me that no matter where we were living in the world, and my family lived internationally quite a bit, that home for us was always the camp. I spent my entire summer, every year of my life, in that space. Maybe I have a different perspective on camps because of that personal connection. And I've always tried to weave that in when I'm talking about it to other people.
1: This personal connection gives Professor Hodge unique insights and access to certain refugee communities. More than that, it means that she sees refugees as people, not as massive hordes, but as flesh and blood individuals. People who do everything that you and I do, listen to music, talk with our friends and worry about our families. And from her perspective, seeing refugees as people and being able to put yourself in their shoes is the first step in solving this crisis. Once you see refugees as actual people, then camps and camp life start to look really different too. In some camps, you can even see a semblance of normal life returning, as residents work to better their own lives and solve some of the practical day-to-day challenges that inevitably arise.
0: I think it's important to move beyond this picture of refugees as barely surviving, as pitiful, as, you know, just warranting humanitarian disaster aid. Of course, in the initial months and years of a crisis, those are concerns that we should be attentive to. But worldwide, refugees live in camps on average 15 to 18 years. So we need to dispel the notion that these are short-term temporary places. And once we move beyond that initial kind of survival mode image that many of us have about camps, we can start to think about the ways in which these communities move beyond survival and are able to thrive.
1: In fact, as Professor Hodge points out, some of the older camps, like her father's in Lebanon, they've been around so long that they look less like temporary cities and more like permanent ones.
0: They're not tented fields anymore like they were in the 40s and 50s. Since that time, they've become more permanent spaces with kind of cinder block homes, with plumbing, with electricity. It doesn't look physically beautiful as a landscape, but it is a very functional environment. People are very industrious and entrepreneurial there. They open businesses, they provide services to one another, they have construction businesses, you can get your hair cut, you can buy clothing made in the camps.
1: We also need to dispel the notion that refugees are haphazardly scattered about the Middle East, which contributes to the perception that these people are rootless or without friends or family or support. Of course, friends and family members can get separated from each other in the chaos of migration you'd be surprised to learn how many families and communities actually remain intact.
0: Initially, refugees, when they arrive in the camp, they're not arriving alone most migration occurs in a chain format that is whoever goes first that you know your neighbor your brother your uncle your aunt you follow them to the same place so when refugees are arriving in the camps they're usually arriving with their social network at least partially intact and this is definitely the case in palestinian refugee camps villages and family networks that existed prior to 1948 are still, socially speaking, alive in refugee camps today. People that were neighbors in Palestine are neighbors in Nehered Badid camp today. And this is a really important resource that refugees emphasize as their primary source of strength when they end up in the camp.
1: It turns out that these social networks also function in many ways as the bedrock of camp society and allow refugees to create order where there might otherwise have been sheer chaos.
0: When you land in a place and there's no police, there's no legal system, and you're given basic provisions and said, this is your plot of land, you start to do things initially, you're like, how am I going to solve dilemmas? There's going to be conflict. People are going to say, no, my tent stake belongs here. You've taken too much space. You're occupying too much space or overdrawing on the small well of water. These are natural conflicts that will occur for everybody. But how do you resolve these conflicts in the absence of kind of a state apparatus? Well, the community said they used the values and norms that they had used prior to 1948 to solve dilemmas in the camps. For example, most Arab children grow up with this notion of aib, and aib means shame. And the thing about shame is it's a really low cost enforcement mechanism because from day one, say you took your toy from your brother, your mother or your father, or any elder would look at you and say, I can't believe you wouldn't share with your brother. That's shameful of you. From day one, you know what is shameful behavior and what is appropriate or honorable behavior. And so when you arrive in a refugee camp, these same kind of communal cultural norms of honor and shame played out in enforcing rules, even informal rules of who owned what in a low cost way that didn't require a military force or formalized rules. Over time, as things progressed, And people started to own more things. Better homes, own a TV, build businesses in the camps. They started to draw up contracts, actual legal titles on paper that show agreements between neighbors. I own this and you own that. And please don't cross this boundary. And it took many years, but the community was able to evolve and adapt these kind of low-cost enforcement mechanisms of honor and shame and apply them in more and more formalized ways as time progressed. These low-cost ways of negotiating conflict over resources are kind of the bedrock for what could later be state building. And I think refugee camps do provide a microcosm for understanding how these chaotic conditions can over time be transformed to less chaotic and maybe more stable or safer situations.
1: Any of this sound kind of familiar? Here's a clue. Think back to your intro college philosophy classes.
0: One thing that I think is fascinating is if we're aware of Hobbes and Locke, like early political philosophers you may remember from college 101 philosophy classes, they're talking about people emerging from the state of nature. The desire to organize and have rules is not that we are like so in love with the state, we have nationalism and things like that. No, the whole reason we emerge from the state of nature and then develop these political structures is because we want to have clear rules of who owns what. So property rights and these low-cost ways of kind of Negotiating conflict over resources are kind of the bedrock for what could later be state building. And I think refugee camps do provide a microcosm for understanding how these chaotic conditions can over time be transformed to less chaotic and maybe more stable or safer situations.
1: So what does all this new info tell us? Well, maybe it's just a matter of flipping the script and getting our students to look at the refugee crisis in a way that recognizes that displaced people actually do have a lot of agency in their lives. In other words, in addition to asking what can we do to help the refugees, it sounds like we should also be asking what are refugees doing to help themselves? Restoring agency to displaced people in this way can help your students see that refugees are really just like them. Hardworking people who wanna live in places where they can be safe, healthy, and near their friends and family. Is that really so much for anyone to ask? Knowing more about refugees as real people is the first step in helping your students better understand this global crisis. Getting to know a refugee, well, that's taking it to the next level, a level that we know many of you would like to reach. But short of packing up and going abroad, how do you go about meeting a refugee?
0: One of the things that's special about the time that we're living in is the way in which we're digitally connected. I'm not like a digital optimist, like the internet solves all problems, but my hope is that unlike in previous times, the digital community offers a new space for people to connect on an individual level. We have much more agency than we give ourselves credit for we can start to make small changes, even if it's just one person to one person. Over time, that can build.
1: So what's the first step? Well, as with many things in life, the best place to start is at the beginning, which in this case, might simply mean learning how to say hello.
0: There's actually a lot of places where I think students in the US could connect with refugees online. Of course, this would need to be a regulated space where someone is there, But one fantastic way is through language learning. If a high school student or middle school student was interested in beginning, just beginning conversational Arabic, and I'm saying, hello, how are you? Where's the bathroom? You know, basic things. There's an awesome site called Neta which means we speak. Neta is structured specifically to allow these types of conversations to happen and is very sophisticated and would be a very good way of doing it students Skype in or FaceTime in and have Arabic conversation with an actual refugee. What a fascinating, amazing way just to see the humanity of someone else.
1: You can also connect with refugees through the UNHCR and UNRWA.
0: The UNRWA has a pretty wonderful website. You can adopt a classroom and do things like that.
1: Of course, there's always online social networks too, like Facebook.
0: Most refugee camps have their own Facebook group pages. For example, Nahad Abadad Camp has its own Facebook group page. It's almost like a community bulletin board or like a virtual town hall space where people will make birth announcements, engagement announcements, I'm opening a new business announcement. It's also a place where people will give sad news about an obituary or a death and it allows people around the globe to transnationally connect to people living in that space. And what is also amazing is you can see how a lot of their concerns or a lot of their joys and sorrows are just the same as the joys and sorrows that you would see on the Facebook page of a Wellesley College, you know, student group that, you know, posts a funny meme or a poem. The same things are happening on this Facebook page. I think it gives you a much fuller picture of refugee life and it also offers an opportunity to learn from them without actually having to travel there to, to see it.
1: And don't forget refugees from the Middle East and other parts of the world may actually already live in your community.
0: There's many church, synagogue, and mosque communities in the U.S. in Boston, in Pittsburgh, in Minnesota, in Atlanta, in San Francisco that sponsor families The moment they arrive at the airport for resettlement, if they've gotten permission to resettle or they've gotten permission to seek asylum in the U.S., the church kind of helps them get set up in an apartment, helps their kids get integrated into the schools. And I think that would be another way locally, if you're looking for that type of more personal connection, that it could occur that way as well.
1: Okay, so now you know more about refugees as people, and you know how to go about actually getting to know the people within some refugee communities. But how do you translate this into workable classroom curriculum? To help us out with this, we turn to Rachel Barker, a sixth grade teacher at the Public Middle School in Wayland, Massachusetts.
2: I teach about refugees in a number of different ways throughout the sixth grade year. I first start off just introducing my students to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and what it means to be a global citizen. And, and those two things help anchor the idea that every human being has rights and those rights include a safe place to live and living in a society that provides them freedoms and, and comforts.
1: Rachel explores the refugee crisis from a variety of angles and using a variety of source material. One of her coolest techniques is using Google Earth to show students just how much the nation of Syria has changed over the last few years.
2: I provide my students with visuals and maps for everything that we do, and I just really believe that you can't truly understand something that's going on in the world that you've never experienced unless you have that visual in front of you. When I'm using Google Earth in teaching about Syria, I use the historical layer where you can slide a a tick all the way back to 10, 20, even more than that years ago. Um, But with Syria, all you need to do is go from 2018 to 2009. And if you zoom in on certain sections of Aleppo, for example, for 2018, you can see these really horrific bombed out sites. They're not so horrific that sixth graders can't look at them, but they are these craters in the earth and in these neighborhoods where people used to live. And you can zoom in and you can take a look at 360 photographs of those places before the war so that students can see this is what a neighborhood in Syria looked like, or this is what a mosque looked like. And then when you go back to 2009, you can see the neighborhoods all have houses, rows and rows of houses. All of the places that were craters in 2018 are people's homes or grocery stores or temples or mosques. Students find this to be pretty poignant because they can really take a look at how, how much things have changed.
1: Rachel also uses photographs to help give her students a frame of reference for what refugee camps and life in the Middle East more broadly look like.
2: I'm not sure that students have an understanding of what a refugee camp is or what one looks like, and they look different in different countries and they look different with different groups of people. I also use Instagram with them. I use everyday Middle East to show them pictures of what people's lives are like in in the Middle East, and that includes refugees that have left their homes in Syria and are somewhere else.
1: Maps and photos of refugees can only do so much, though. To humanize the crisis, she relies heavily on works of fiction.
2: I use literature to help students get in the hearts and minds of the almost faceless and voiceless people that they may see on the news or in the nonfiction articles that I give them to read when we study Syria. I use the book Refugee by Alan Gratz. It's a book that tells the story of three different refugees from three different time periods and three different perspectives. One refugee, a Jewish refugee during the time of the Holocaust, a Cuban refugee trying to make it to Florida, and a Syrian refugee from 2015. The book is great because, unlike some of the other more historical novels that we read in my class, this book takes place in 2015. So the little boy in the book, who is the same age as my students, which is pretty helpful, has an iPhone. They use Google Maps to try to get themselves out of their neighborhood and into Turkey. His trajectory takes him into Turkey and then into a raft into the Mediterranean Sea and into Greece, which is such a similar story to so many real refugees eventually he makes it through europe and into germany and that is where his story ends he makes he's okay and he actually gets help from the descendant of one of the holocaust refugees from the book so it all comes together at the end there are some scary parts of the book but nothing that my students can't handle and there are some moments where i think my students feel a connection because this boy is living a life and was living a life before the war started that is so, so similar to theirs.
1: Of course, Rachel balances her literary sources with nonfiction sources too, including some sources designed specifically for younger audiences. BBC has a
2: section of its website called Newsround, which is specifically dedicated to younger kids, usually in the middle school area. And what's great about the BBC's coverage of Syria is it's very kid-friendly. They don't explicitly show any violence, but do cover what the conflict is and what is happening in this conflict and the conflicts in the past without explicitly showing anything. They also do a nice job of keeping up with the news. So anytime there's something new that happens in Syria, they will cover it by either doing a question and answer session with a reporter or a one-minute short clip or they might add on to an article. And all of the reporters are kid-friendly reporters. They're there to cater to questions that kids have.
1: Mixing up your source material in this way and blending old school print material with tech tools like Google Earth, Instagram, and even FaceTime will all keep your students engaged and provide them with a variety of perspectives as you help them navigate this crisis on both the macro global level and the individual person to person level that is so incredibly important. Before we wrap up, we have one final piece of advice, especially for those of you who might still be on the fence as to whether or not you should teach about refugees.
0: I hope that teachers feel that if they want to broach the topic of refugees with their students, that it doesn't have to be a purely political conversation. You could get into this issue of refugees from a lot of different angles. Come from it from the perspective of food. How are people celebrating their food traditions, even in chaotic conditions? Come at it from a fictional literature perspective. Or you could consider it from the perspective of language and look at a place like Netakelem or other digital language places that allow for dialogue with refugees online. I hope the kind of political sensitivity issues don't dissuade people from getting into it.
1: With more than 65 million displaced people around the world today, it's incumbent on all of us to be thinking about how we can resolve this unprecedented crisis. At the same time, we have to remember that refugees are human beings and therefore capable of shaping their own destinies too, even if they might need a little extra support. You can do your part by talking with your students about the crisis and ideally by finding ways to engage with refugees on a human level, not because you pity them, but because you stand with them. Thanks for joining us, and talk more next time on What Teachers Need to Know the Middle East. To learn more about this podcast, our sponsors, and for free online resources to help you teach about the refugee crisis in the Middle East, visit www.primarysource.org slash podcasts. And if you love this podcast as much as we do, let us know by reviewing us on iTunes. More reviews means more new listeners, which ultimately means more great episodes for you.